This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing the best to my Times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times radio app. It means you can catch all the stuff that doesn't make it on to the podcast. Coming up today is the last one of the series, PMQ's Unpacked, Rishi Sunak making a rare appearance at the end of the series show, the series finale, PMQ's Unpacked. I'm joined by Tim Shipman, uh, cheapest commentator of the Sunday Times as ever, plus Stig Abel off of Times Radio Breakfast. Let's see what he makes of it. I'm going to put it, he doesn't like it. That's PMQ's Unpacked coming up in just a moment. But first, let's take a look at the news with today's columnists. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, and Wednesday should of course be Alibert. We've got the alley. Alice Thompson's here. Morning. Morning, Matt. Uh, but no, Rob, do we know where Robert Crampton is? Is I he dressing he up? he may be in the heat wave in France. Is he? Yeah, without a pool. Do you remember? He'd actually drained his pool and got rid of it. <laughs> what a time. What a got time. Got wrong. A very small violin for Robert and his drain, so important. Uh, we have, though, got uh, the Times' Carol Lewis. Hi, Carol. How are you doing? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. Well, we should start with your area of expertise as property editor, Carol. Mortgage rates. Mortgage rates. So inflation down by a bit more than expected to Tons. just to just 7.9%. <laughs> yes. What does that mean at the Bank of England when they next come to consider interest rates? Well, I hope it means they'll pause before they give us a 14th consecutive rise. Um, I really hope they do because it takes a year to 18 months for these rate rises to percolate down into the economy. So what we're seeing now is the result of rate rises months ago. So I I think the direction of travel is right. We can't get too excited. There's not a huge fall in inflation, but it's coming down slowly. And I hope this will give them cause to pause, yeah. as it were. But there is a phrase in financial journalism, it's up like a rocket, down like a feather. So I don't think we're going to see mortgage rates start dropping as quickly as they rose. But it does give hope that they'll start to edge down because we're talking about nearly 7% at the moment for two and five-year fixes. And you, the reason you, you'd say 18 months, that's because of, you, that's the sort of when you reach the critical mass of people who've come off their yes. mortgages. Yes, because in, in the past we used to all be on variables and it would be almost immediate. Now people are on two and five-year fixes. It takes a lot longer to sort of come through. And so would it be, is it actually the case, they just put them up to start with? And then everyone would have thought, well, my mortgage is coming 
when I come off. Did that actually the constant matching up for 14, uh, 14 times in a row wasn't necessary? That we were going to get there in the end? Oh, I don't know. I mean, there's an argument to say they should have gone a bit like the Fed. They should have gone harder, faster. Yeah. But they didn't. They've the done this done long, slow yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 0.5 percentage points each time. Yeah. Um, but I think today's news, although you know that we are talking small incremental falls, yeah. is optimistic and should help with sentiment in the housing market. And it should mean we can start to see mortgage rates stabilise and, and start to come down. Although, as Manreen was, was saying earlier, there are always unexpected things. We've got the grain deal um, that hasn't come through. We've also got this heat wave that Alice just mentioned. I mean, I don't know what effect that would have on crops, but it may well have an effect on food prices. Yes, we're not completely out of the woods, uh, out of the woods yet. And Alice, the thing we need to remember is, was well, it 7.9% uh, inflation rate now, but that's just 7.9% up on what things cost the same time last year. And this time last year, uh, everything was up 9%. I think that's the big problem. So what worries me is when you look at the stats, people think that when inflation comes down, the food prices come down, but they don't. They stay the same. That's going to be really tricky for people because they feel there's going to be a drop back to what it was before. And I think they're really struggling already. The idea that this is going to continue is going to be really hard, I think, after the summer holidays. Yeah, the only thing that seems to be down is actually down is transport, which I think is like um, petrol and diesel. But everything else is just up. It's just up by a bit less than it was up last month yeah it's really difficult it's it I mean it's not just the cost of living and going in the supermarket but the mortgage rises as they come through are causing real problems the fact that we're talking about housing affordability in places like selby is a real indictment of the housing policy of the Tories because selby was always seen as an affordable place if you couldn't afford leeds or harrogate you went to selby now people in selby are saying we can't afford to live in selby and the political impact, I mean, the political impact's particularly live because obviously the by-election there mm, tomorrow, mm, but yes. that will be being played out right across the country. Absolutely, that's that's what people are talking about on the doorstep. They yeah. can't afford their grocery bills, they can't afford their mortgage, and, and they can't afford their rents if they're renting because their landlord's put, mm. put, put up the rent because he can't afford his mortgage. So do you think, Alice, if all the pain and uh, the pain of inflation coupled with rising mortgage costs, even if at the end of the year Rishi Sunak says, great, Inflation's now only 5% instead of 10%. I've delivered, I've halved inflation. Does he get any political capital from that at all? No, I don't think he will. And you can see that with the by-elections, that they're just, you know, they've had a couple of good news stories and that's still not having any effect on the polls at all. The by-elections will be fascinating because they're all around the country. So it's not going to be just a one snapshot from one area that's annoyed about some local issue. This is going to be a national real snapshot of what's going on in the country. So and I think they're going to do appallingly. Yeah, because it because it because it, it is three different places. Mm. It's it's Labour facing London. It's some uh, Lib Dem facing yeah. West Country, and a place like Selby, which is you know with a big stonking Tory majority. But you know there are plenty of other places like that, um, uh, which could be vulnerable for them. Well, we'll see what happens. We'll get obviously have those results overnight on uh, uh, Thursday night into Friday, and uh, we've got a special show actually on uh, on the show on Friday. I think we've got John Curtis. Haven't we? John Curtis is coming. Yeah, amongst others. That'd be nice. Uh, right. Um, let's. Here's the big question. Here's a big question that's been troubling me this morning. Do you feel sorry for Nigel Farage? So, Nigel Farage, uh, a couple of weeks ago, made a big fuss about his bank account. He'd lost his bank account at Coots, and it turned out that he said at the time that other banks wouldn't take him. Uh, he said it was because he was a uh, Mr Brexit, 
then someone from Coons, possibly ill-advisedly, briefed the BBC that actually it wasn't. It was because he didn't have enough money in the bank. He didn't have a million pounds in the bank. He then did this thing called, I can't remember what it's called, the per, the, where you can basically, it's like an FOI request for your own details. So he's got this big report they produced on him, and uh, they've described him as a reputational risk. Uh, the Res- Reputational Risk Committee exited him after considering his views on issues like Brexit. Uh, they've said he's seen as a xenophobic and racist, uh, talks about being a fascist in his school days, and is, is described as a disingenuous grifter. So this is uh, Nigel Farage talking about this document. It reads rather like a brief that you'd give to a barrister ahead of a serious criminal trial. I mean, from the tone of this document, I must be one of the worst human beings ever to have inhabited this planet. But I guess if you were, you know, upper middle class, wealthy, London, metropolitan elite, uh, then that's perhaps how you would view me. Although quite what this has to do with banking and commerce, I don't really know. It's not a farage there. Uh, all, all credit to Sheila, who's texted in already, before we even got to that clip, saying, I'm disappointed to hear Times Radio trivialising the dreadful banking scandal that Nigel Farage is highlighting. Shame on you and your prejudice. Nobody said anything yet, Sheila. I'm just <laughs> telling you the story. Now, this is pretty extraordinary, isn't it, Carol? If this is the case, I mean, I have to say, there's probably lots of things I don't agree with Nigel Farage on, but this just seems like really bad business. If you're going to start making value judgments on every person... Yeah, I wonder how many uh, clients Coots would have left. Yeah. <laughs> but not least because there's <laughs> yeah. circles they move in, you've got to have a million pounds it, in the Exactly, bank. exactly. Um, I'm, I do feel sorry for him. Yes, I, do, I don't think banks should make decisions on whether you can have an account there based on your political views. I am confused by this story, though, because previously, when they talked about um, did he have enough money in the account, did he, I can't remember the, the things, but you have to borrow a million and have three million in savings or something, yeah, yeah. don't you? Um, he'd said, oh, yeah, that's quite right. I don't meet that criteria. Yeah. Um, and and then he was offered another account with NatWest because Coots is part of NatWest. Yeah. And he said, oh, yes, that's right. So now, now he's gone back to... And then, because this, it this sort of triggered this whole debate this, about people yeah. of political interest. Yes. Which actually, it turns out, anyone who's ever met someone in the House of Lords seems to have had trouble uh, getting a bank out, which seems like a separate point. The thing I don't totally understand, Alice, is that it's only Coots telling everyone that Nigel Farage was one of their customers that has led to any reputational risk, because we don't know who people bank with. And if you're a bank, aren't you in the business of making money rather than turning away... People. Yes, I don't feel remotely sorry for Nigel Farage because actually I think this is great PR in some ways. For him. He's very good at it. And he could have gone to NatWest and there's so many other banks he could go to. But I do think the bank, I think Coots has behaved appallingly. I think it's a really odd thing to do and to have that bigger dossier and spend that much time delving yeah. into him. And they said something like 86 times they mentioned mm. Brexit. So that does look like they've got an obsession with that and they shouldn't care whether or not you're Brexit or Remain, yeah. or, particularly now. And, and then mentioning Trump 39 times. It's, and, it's very odd. And the Russians. And some of it actually is quite spurious. And I... So I don't feel sorry for him, but I do think he's got a right now to bring it up and to talk about it. And before I thought, oh, well, you obviously just don't meet the criteria, as you said. Mm. And I think banks have got to step back. They can't start judging who they want and who they don't want. And it's not a club and and it shouldn't be. Although I think I love the fact that Nigel Farage talks about these sort of upper middle class Londoners in the metropolitan elite, <laughs> which is pretty much what he is and yes. what they complained yeah. he was in some ways. So... Um, I think it's complicated, but I I definitely think the bank here has made a huge mistake. Also, he's had an account for years, so why now? Well, that's the other thing. What have they been doing? How slow are they at writing a doc? I mean, we've all put things off. 
but it's 2023. Have they only just noticed that he's Mr. Brexit and has said things that they might not agree with? I, th- I think I think the whole thing is... is pretty... Surely it's because the younger generation have come in to Coots Bank and have looked at him and said, why have we got Nigel Farage? But maybe this is what happens when you... The starting point when you set off on, you know, banks changing their logos to the pride flag for a month and, you know, you're a bank... You're, the whole point is you have your money there and you can take your money out and they make some money from you. Once you start turning it into a value judgment, to be like your money and how did you get that money? And that even not what's illegal... But just a sort of moral judgment on your customers. Yeah, so I also doubt that if he had millions, millions in there, that they would have done it. Well, there is also that. There is also that. And I mean, you know, do do that? Could would a bank now say they're not going to have Hugh Edwards as a customer, having not done anything illegal? But there's a moral question, you know, about some people don't like what he's done. You know, that seems pretty extraordinary. Well, they didn't used to have women, did they? And then it wasn't sort of single mums. And I mean, it's a different yeah. sort of value judgment. But I mean, as you say, they can't have that moral judgment there. That that's not really for them. Um, uh, lots of people again. Subject access requests. That was the thing I was looking for. Toby in Cardiff says, "I do despise Nigel Farage, but I do think refusing banking services because of political views is troubling." Uh, um, uh, someone else says the whole thing is hilarious it sounds like just the kind of thing the EU would hate and put a stop to oh well uh, it needs to be illegal for banks to be able to behave in this uh, bullying and excluding the offensive way says Mike in London uh, uh, someone else says play, David says playing devil's advocate could it be that exposure to Trump and Russia wasn't such a big deal until 2023 I just don't think I just think it's a very weird thing that maybe that this whole idea of companies now having to have a moral compass rather than just behaving legally and trying to make money mm. so what they're going to stop taking money from saudi princes because they get their money from fossil fuels i doubt it i, I just i just think this is sort of smacks of hypocrisy yeah i just i mean given the you know with the, with the exception i know chris bryant's made some allegations about nigel Farage, but given these money just seems to have come from endless appearances on question time and now gb mm. news there's no, you know, if he's not done anything illegal, which there are lots of rules that banks have to abide by, it does seem pretty extraordinary. Well, the banks, exactly, because of Russia, they do have to abide by that and they have to mm. be quite careful about that. But they haven't been told they have to be careful about Brexiteers or they have to be careful about... Well, that'd be half the country who yeah. couldn't have a bank account. And I suppose if some people who currently have their bank accounts with Coots decide to leave on the basis of this, they're worried about uh, being, you know, outed in this way by Coots, then uh, the whole thing might, might end up backfiring on. But there, anyway, there we are. Nice to have a conversation about Nigel Farage, in which we basically agree <laughs> with him. Uh, we've just been thinking, actually, anyone with a Coots account should put in a public access request, and there'll be an endless stream of stories of people discovering what you're... Maybe we should, I'd love to know what Santander Dare said about me. Not very much, I suspect. Yes, that's the sound of Paul's Death Beach in Cornwall, where infrared CCTV cameras have been deployed as part of a crackdown on antisocial behaviour by youngsters at night. Uh, they can monitor the beach in the dark when young people have been seen drinking, taking drugs, having sex and littering. Uh, well, let's now speak to Andy Cameron, who owns 36 acres of Polseth Beach and runs Wave Hunters Surf School uh, down there as well. Hi, Andy. Hi, guys. Uh, I, I don't want to turn this turn into an endorsement, but I think I've hired uh, boogie boards from you, so I know exactly where you are. <laughs> um, uh, now, tell us, what's, what, why has this been picked, on, picked up now? Because... Young people coming to the beach for the summer holidays and enjoying themselves doesn't strike me as breaking news. I'm not sure why it's being picked on. I mean, I think there are a few uh, issues on the beach, but there's definitely been a, a party scene on Poles F for the last sort of five, six years. And 
prior to that, it was down at another beach just down the road, Damer, down at Damer Beach. Um, there's always been this two weeks of partying at Poles F or at, at, in the area. And how big a problem is it? Um, I think it's pretty difficult uh, with the amount of rubbish that's left. Uh, there's quite a lot of rubbish left on the beach in the evenings uh, or in the mornings, and there seems to be big groups. But I don't know. I, I don't know how big a problem it is. Um, it possibly is slightly blown out of proportion. Maybe there's not enough news at the moment. I don't know. And what about this? <laughs> yeah, tell me about it as we go to recess. Um, uh, what about this suggestion? It's all private school kids. Yeah, I, I think there's an argument that there's a lot of private school kids that come down for these two weeks, but I think people like the argument, don't they? They like to say <laughs> it's the kids ruining it and it's not the local kids and uh, anyone went to state school definitely doesn't leave any rubbish on the beach. <laughs> so I would probably well, disagree with that argument. Now, Alice, not wanting to drag your family into this, but aren't your children bang on this demographic? They are bang on it, but they haven't been to Paul's Earth. Right. That's not to say they haven't been to beaches or had a good time. I'd quite like David Attenborough to go down and do one of those nighttime <laughs> fishing things and, and discuss what they're all doing and who they are, because it would be quite yeah. a clever thing to do. And he'd be very good on it, where they're hiding, when they come out, their movements. Yeah, the idiot with the guitar. Yes, I think I'd really like, I'd enjoy watching that. What do you think, Carol? I, said I think it's been going on for forever. I get yeah. to North Cornwall a lot. Um, I think didn't Wills and Harry do it when they were younger? They went down to Rock and Paul's F yeah. and partied. It's not it's not a new thing at all. I think there is there is an element of it, it being anti posh kids from London. Yeah, I think it's all part of this whole feeling of we don't want all the London elite coming down here for their holidays and buying second homes. I think it's all tied into that. Spending all their money, yeah. keeping the businesses going. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, how is how is business, Andy? Is it is it busy so far? As you get, I suppose you're sort of into peak season now, almost. It's peak season down in Cornwall. Um, it's quite interesting. We operate across several sort of high-profile beaches in North Cornwall, uh, and Poles F is the busiest beach, and uh, so it's it's a difficult argument to have uh, when people blame uh, just the private school customers because. The businesses are doing well having those private school customers. I think the argument really is is how do uh, how do we control the parties to some extent? But you know there have been parties there for a long time. We have got these amazing beach ranger guys now who everyone will be in agreement with whether he went to state school or private school that these guys are great because they sort of monitor it. Um, but yeah, I, I I often feel this time of year there are some amazing locals. You know, and I'm a, I'm a local as well that that do help clear the beaches, but it does always seem to be this spiky argument that it's only private school kids that cause a mess and it's not state school kids. And that seems to be the, the whole narrative. And you guys will probably have reported on the narrative during other periods, stages in the, in history, such as COVID, that it was the, that the COVID from London was a much stronger strain than the COVID, COVID from Cornwall. So. <laughs> and uh, just while you're down there, I, uh, I see you in the car uh, at the moment, Andy. What is the surf like today? So it's pretty good today. Um, I'm on boat trips today, just so you know, we do boat trips as well. Very good. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's an okay season. Lovely stuff. Andy, really good to speak to you. Andy Cameron there from uh, Wave Hunters Surf School. Andy does boat trips, uh, which is very good. Uh, we should just talk about uh, young people and uh, apprenticeships, because you've written about apprenticeships today, Alice. I have, because we talked about uh, universities and whether they were value for money, and Rishi Sunak has come out and has been 
actually the seventh prime minister in a row to say we should look at apprenticeships <laughs> instead. And they all do it. Apart from Liz Truss, who didn't really have time, she only briefly mentioned it. But it's always meant to be the answer. And I was looking at apprenticeships, and actually the dropout rate is 50% nearly with apprenticeships, which it isn't in universities. The dropout rate is under 3% for most universities. So they're not the be-all and end-all, and yeah. we've got to make them a lot better. If you want to say to people, don't go to university, do an apprenticeship, then they've got to be paid properly. The, the, the wage, the living wage they're on is about £5.50, so it's, it's really cheap labour for a lot yeah, of these yeah, companies. Yeah. I um, I totally agreed with your column. I wrote a, a column about apprenticeships about two, three weeks ago as well, because in the building trades, there's yeah. enormous shortages. We haven't got enough electricians, plumbers, kitchen fitters, carpenters. Yeah. So we do need more people to do apprenticeships. And those jobs are a bit more uh, likely to survive AI than the nonsense that we do. Absolutely, but but part of what's underpinning our problem with apprenticeships is we just don't value them. We don't mm. value the trades. We we somehow think studying to be an electrician is inferior to studying mm. philosophy. Mm. Um, we just we need to, we need to somehow change our mental uh, perception of trades and engineers and electricians and plumbers and value them more in society and i think if we did that then we would go some way towards making sure the courses are decent the pay yeah. on the courses is decent because surveys show that uh, particularly in the building trades that once you've qualified and you are actually you know your own yeah. freelance jobbing plumber or electrician there's high job contentment yeah, yeah. and the money's pretty, money's good. pretty good I think yeah, the yeah. average is about 45,000 Alice Thompson and Carol Lewis there and of course you can read them both in the Times every week just get yourself a subscription go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box up next is PMQ's Unpacked If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. 
I call Matt Chorley and Tim Shipman. And Tim Shipman is indeed here. Tim, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Matt. And Stig Abel's here. Hello. From Times Radio Breakfast, but you already know that's... Do you normally bother with PMQs, Stick? I do. I'm one of these things, I'm often on a train and I listen for 10 minutes. I do get annoyed by it. So I'm one of these people that I start it, but don't always finish it. And I, I often didn't get all the way through to Ian Blackford. Is it the content of the questions or the analysis by Tim and I that it's pushed you both off? I enjoy the analysis. I find the content. I find the schoolboy and girl nature of it really annoying. That's I, no way to speak about Matt and I. <laughs> and I find the speaker very annoying. Well, it gets cross if people I say just that. just can't bear it. It's sort of so ostentatious. I always think of weak geography supply teacher being ostentatious, and it yeah, annoys yeah. me. Uh, well, uh, let us know on the YouTube channel what you uh, think might happen today. John says you're not live on the YouTube channel yet. Yeah, we are, John. I can literally see it. You need to hit refresh or something. Uh, uh, Gareth is in Devon. Um, uh, David is in the Philippines. There we are. Uh, why is it Stig wearing his white crash helmet? It's a different. It's, a, it's an old joke, but that's fine. Uh, a goodie. Stickers in the house. Hello from Hong Kong. Hello from Wiltshire. Uh, Richard's in Fleet. Good to see you, Richard. Uh, good morning from sunny Plymouth. Staying at the Grand Hotel in Port Talbot. It was one of the most memorable nights of my life, says Richard. A story I think though. we need more, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> we might be glad of that by about quarter past. Um, uh, Tim, last one of the of the term. Yes, and the A team is back. Yes, it's very exciting. Yeah, we haven't seen the past them for couple weeks of weeks. Have been a bit. Low energy. Yeah, I think it's fair to say. Oliver Dow Discovering that Oliver Dowder was an anagram of wooden drivel was basically the highlight of the past fortnight. Very much so. Um, yeah, and we got bar elections coming up. We got inflation dropping, so I'm sure we'll hear about that from the Prime Minister. Probably yeah. six times as he <laughs> attempts to cobble an answer together. Do you think anyone will mention the battery factory? Battery factory. Uh, yeah, I'm allowed, to, be clear, I'm allowed to do the Somerset accent because it's where I'm from. Exactly. I'm not mocking. We're not. You're we're, not. We won't be doing that. Were they worry. building a battery factory in Loughborough? Yeah, I'd just be right at it. Yeah. I'd be hard at it, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to be, I'm just going to be appreciating your accent. Yes, very No good. one's ever built a battery factory in Lincolnshire where I grew up. So. Well, maybe it's time to. Exactly. Levelling up. Shot in the arm. Yeah, yeah, Brexit benefit right there. Yeah. Lincolnshire wasn't it like the most Vox Pop <laughs> Boston, didn't it? Was it Boston and Lincolnshire was like the most Vox Pop town in Britain? I think, uh, yeah, Boston became interesting when they started voting for uh, Nigel Farage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's very good. Uh, right, are we ready to go to the House of Commons? We are all geared up, ready for Keir Starmer? Yeah, good. Here we go then, live on Times Radio and on the Times Radio Ooh, you're YouTube. Bringing channel. the energy. Yeah, here we go. Pumped, lively. Stig's on the edge of his seat. Yes! <laughs> Here is question number one from Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, Labour in government was proud to repeal the ban against LGBT plus people serving in our armed forces. And today we strongly welcome this apology from the Prime Minister as a recognition of their historic mistreatment. Mr Speaker, my constituent, Ken Wright, was a proud RAF serviceman forced to leave the job he loved simply because he was gay. I'm delighted he is here today to witness this apology. Yeah. And whilst we cannot right the wrongs of the past, the Government should now act on the recommendations of the Etherton Review to fix the lives broken by the ban. It's what LGBT plus veterans deserve. Yeah. Mr Speaker, I also know the whole House will want to send our very best wishes to the Lionesses as they start their World Cup campaign this Saturday. Let's hope they continue the brilliant success they had in the Euros. Mr Speaker, when the Prime Minister took office nine months ago, the NHS waiting list had 7.2 million people on it. What's the number today? 
Well, Mr. Mr. Speaker, the, the reason that the NHS waiting lists are higher today than they were then, after actually being stable uh, for the first few months as we put in place new initiatives, is very simple, and that's because the NHS has been disrupted by industrial action, Mr. Speaker. Now, we've put very clear plans in place to bring down waiting lists in urgent and emergency care, in primary care, in ambulances and outpatients and electives. Those plans were working and will continue to work, but we do need to end the industrial action. So I'd ask the honourable gentleman, if he does care about bringing the waiting list down, does he agree with me that consultants and junior doctors should accept the pay deal that the government offered? Well, there's quite a lot to unpack uh, mm. uh, to unpack there. So, uh, this is slightly the nature of these things. We always go straight into uh, Keir Starmer. Uh, Rishi Sunak already committing news of a sort, Tim. What's he said uh, this morning? He's apologised to gay military veterans over the ban on them serving in the armed forces. There you go, you've answered your own question. Well, I wasn't totally sure if you... You looked a bit like you might not know that that's what had happened. Oh, you have. Oh, good. Um, why has he done that today? Uh, I don't know. Right, fine. David Cameron always likes apologising for things he hadn't done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's quite a safe territory, isn't it? For in fact, a, if David Cameron had been Prime Minister, we would have had sort of reparations for slavery, I suspect. Well, in, uh, Gordon Brown apologised for... Adler, to Alan Turing, I think. And didn't he? people being sent to Australia? Possibly, yes. Yeah. Transportation. It's a very safe ground, isn't it? Because they can't be blamed for it, but they're doing something nice. And, and I think that probably is a thing they're quite happy with. Saves them having to be nice to real living people sometimes. Yeah, so Rishi Sunak said uh, he acknowledged many LGBT veterans endured the most horrific sexual violence and he hopes everyone effectively will be able to feel proud of the part, uh, proud to be part of the British veteran community. And we're not beyond the realms of possibility that doing things on a Wednesday morning just gives him half an answer of sort of respite when he gets to PMQs. Yeah, exactly right. Then, uh, once he'd got through all of that, Keir Starmer moved on to NHS waiting lists. Yeah, which they haven't, you know, they've, they've done a lot more housing than NHS recently. So, yeah. um, you know, and but those waiting lists have been creeping up. The answer he didn't get, I think, is it's gone to 7.4 million from 7.2. Don't give it I, I away. Believe. We're on our tenterhooks uh, to find out. Well, we can see whether I'm right. Well, you said got it a bit wrong. But uh, but Sunak reasonably sort of keyed up in his response and saying, well, it's got worse because of all these strikes and we've given a decent pay offer to people and most people have accepted it. But the BMA, God bless them, Mark, you know, quietly one of the most militant trade unions in the country and they're still holding out. So he's now trying to swing it back on Starmer uh, on that front. And we know, you'll know, Stig, from um, the amount of messages we get, People are much more cross about the junior doctors going out, demanding 35% and going out on strike than, than you know, the other areas in large parts of the other public sector have now set up. And the consultants as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. consultants even more so than junior yeah. doctors. I mean, we had a consultant on and he made the very good point that this is just a market forces argument. There are too many doctors leaving the NHS to go to other countries. And if you want to keep them, you need to pay them more. And that's not a question of what even you think they deserve. Yeah, it's yeah. a question of you want to keep them, you have to pay them what they're worth in the open market, yeah. the international market. And that does have a bit of traction, I think. But he clearly wants to say, uh, the problem is industrial action, the problem is socialism, you're a socialist, I'm not a socialist, Keir Starmer. The other interesting thing about him going on the NHS is the Lib Dems have been really pushing the NHS in the past. Because you had to add Davey on, what was he What was he going to enshrine into law? I didn't understand this, Tim, I don't know if you can explain this to, to me. He, he said, we want to make it a legal right that you can see your GP within a week. Yeah. And I said, okay, if I can't see my GP in a, in a week... What does a legal right mean? What what do I get? What do who I do? Who do you sue? Who, would you, who yeah, pays and, you money? And do give, who gives him money? And he said he, he got very weird about the NHS constitution. He really couldn't say the answer. Yeah, to that. Yeah. Like, what's the actual benefit of me having a legal right 
And there appears I suspect to be the none. answer to that is that you get no benefit from it at all, but the people failing to deliver you that legal right then face some form of uh, Well, yeah, he seemed to be saying that it was a legal right on the government, not on your local GP surgery either. So it just becomes a sort of big amorphous thing. But the, Let's the make the NHS more point complicated. Yeah. That would be the <laughs> Lib Dems hammered GP access in the Tiverton and Honiton by-election, which they ended up winning. And they've been really hammering it at PMQs last week. Ed Davey asked about dentists. Yeah, dentists are a huge all, issue in the South. Albeit, uh, he asked about dentists in charge, which aren't actually in the constituency. But, uh, so it's quite interesting that Keir Starmer's drifted back onto that, having done housing so much. Anyway, there we are. Uh, we've unpacked quite a lot there. Uh, let's well, go. I think there was more in that first exchange than there has been in the last fortnight. I think you might be right. Let's go back to the House of Commons, and this is question number two from Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker. Mr. S- this, the oh, Prime Minister likes to get away here. The more that you stop me getting on with the questions, the more I'm going to keep him here. So it's up to you where long you want the Prime Minister. Keir Starmer. Oh, shaking his head already. I'm, That's exactly my point. House is pleased that he's graced us with his presence today. But we don't get any more answers when he's here than when he's not. (laughs) He knows the answer. Seven point million people currently on the waiting list. Prime Minister, that's the highest it's ever been. It means that since he stepped foot into Downing Street, 260,000 people have been waiting in daily agony for things like hip and knee replacements while he boasts. Has he figured out why, after nine months, dozens of gimmicks, umpteen broken promises, his government is failing more patients than ever before? Mr Speaker, again, I don't think we heard an answer to the question. And also, I don't want you holding up proceedings, Prime Minister. It's, it's very simple. If, if the honourable gentleman actually looked at what was happening earlier this year, what we have seen, what we have seen actually, is that our plans were beginning to work. Ambulance and waiting times down from an hour and a half over Christmas to around half an hour, virtually eliminating the number of people waiting one and a half years for treatment, making huge progress on GP access. Now, all those things, all those plans we put in place, all the funding, all the extra ambulances, the extra discharge, all starting to make a difference, all held up by one very simple fact, industrial action in the NHS. Now, again, I'll give him a second chance. If he really wants to get people the health care that they want, Will he agree with me that those doctors should accept the recommendations of the independent pay review body? We're that close to Lindsay Hoyle saying it's Prime Minister's questions. You don't get to ask the question, it's Prime Minister. That is unbelievable, isn't it, that it's Leader of the Opposition questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what that does, though, is that it's all part of this, this accidentally, on the Tories' part, creating a sense of inevitability about... Keir Starmer becoming Prime Minister. Yeah. That once everyone accident without even thinking about it, they fall into the mindset of what are you go- asking him? Well, what are you going to do when you're Prime Minister? And we do that all the time on the breakfast show. We have Labour every day. Yeah. And it's just very easy to say, well, in a year's time, you'll be the, you'll be in power, yeah. won't you? Yeah. And, and then he creates they like, that. They want. Yeah. Let's hope uh, that uh, if he does make it to power, that he can get his syntax sorted out. I mean, it's 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 silly, isn't it, to poke fun at things. But um, seven point more million was brilliant, I thought. You know, I mean, that gets you out of all problems, doesn't it? You just yeah. say, eight point more! Yeah. <laughs> it's that's going big, up. That's a big number, Tim. Yeah. And, the, and then 260, 100,000. It was like having Pretty Patel back doing the numbers, wasn't it? But also, what you can't do is, when you've said to him, 
Set there were seven point two million. What is it now? Yeah, and well, then you, you can't don't let get the your number big out. reveal come out at seven point more million. I love it. Um, you'll be pleased to know there's some more Lindsay Hoy. Would you like to hear it? Steve? Yeah, go on. Yeah, this is what he said. Can I just say to the Prime Minister, it's the opposition questions. Yeah. It's the Prime Minister's question. Yeah. There we go. There we are. It's just so awful, isn't it? As a spectacle, I mean, it really is. I mean, I, I know it has been really good. I know there have been titans who've been, you know, debating the issues of the day across the dispatch box, but Sunak Starmer are not those titans, are they? No, but I, as I said, I mean, ironically, this is the most bravura Sunak's been in about two months, I would say. And he does actually have an argument to make, at least, um, even if he's framing it as a question, which he shouldn't be. Um, whether we should all reflect on the fact that he's promising us extra discharge in the, in the NHS, I don't know. The uh, Someone's pointed out that Penny Mordant's... Uh, lots of people notice how, how miserable Penny Mordant looks. Penny Mordant always looks as though she'd rather be somewhere else. Well, holding a sword. She I mean, looks as unhappy as ever. She'll uh, never get better than that, though, will she? It's never going to top that, is it? No. Even if she becomes Prime Minister one day. Especially if she does, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> Tim, does it work, this... Because presumably the thing he's trying to do, Rishi Sunak, is to say... You lot are left-wing, you lot are in the pocket of the unions. And is that the big thing? Because he's sort of recognised that Labour are trying to say we're centrist now, we're Blairites now. We had Yvette Cooper on and wouldn't say she was a socialist. And is that is that the line we're going to get for another 18 months, that you are old-fashioned Labour, brackets, a bit Corbyn-y, even though you pretend to be like Blair? I think there's a bit of that. And don't forget what they did, to, uh, what the, the argument was about Tony Blair before he took power. It was that, you know, he'd still be in you know this Bambi character who's going to be pushed around by all these wicked unions. Um, so, yes, that's clearly the big threat uh, to the Tories. We're going to hear lots more about it. But I think there's two things going on here. It's not just making that argument. It's also trying to cheer up everybody behind you who's miserable, thinks they're going to lose three by and thinks everything's going in the wrong direction. And it has been for two months. And Sunak's trying to show at least we've got an argument here that you can use on the doorstep that, you you know, we can take to these people in the autumn. Um, you know, and if you listen to Downing Street, they, they're talking a big game about, you know, upping their energy, not sitting around just being technocrats, but getting stuck in, you know. And um, Rishi Sunak is better. Gloves off. Rishi Sunak is better at the dispatch box than in lots of other settings. When That's he's doing true. press conferences or speeches, it's really? all a little bit favourite. And I think he's quite, you know, he he, he does better. Yeah. His in, best format is probably a small, is sort of a medium to small group where he can just sort of chat to people. That's yeah. probably, you know, the sort of small town hall is probably his best yeah, setting. Yeah. This is probably his next best. We all wait and wonder what on earth will happen at conference where, um, you know, he's going to have to do a big platform speech. That's a good and, point. I think you should do a Cameron where he, he memorises it. Just yeah, yeah, around. Yeah. And we could all yeah. just say how, what a great job he's memorised me for 40 minutes. That, yeah, I mean, that, 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 that won't too much about the content. Yeah, that'll Either that or get a very tiny podium that makes him look enormous. <laughs> Or a really, really tall, you know, he could be on a very high platform. He could stand next to Daniel Kaczynski, on a yeah. <laughs> at all times. Yeah, maybe you should do that trick. The old, um, I've torn up my speech. Was it in Blackpool, David Literally Cameron? Literally tear it up. Yeah. You could go and go they even had, further they, than Cameron. They, they you were, could walk on stage they, they with were, the thing. There were pictures, a photographer caught David Cameron walking like in his hotel room. Not quite tearing them up, but like walking around. Yeah. Looking at learning his speech, and then the next day they said, No, he's torn it up. I've got to say, it worked a bit with both when he. I know Miliband forgot to mention the economy, but just as an act of remembering, yeah, yeah. I was slightly impressed. I yeah, thought, yeah. Well done. It's not the thing everyone could do. I mean, anyone can read out these boring speeches which, which have four words well, for each that, paragraph. Tell that to Theresa May. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> we, we introduced uh, producer Kia works on my show. She's from Australia. She wasn't familiar with the Theresa May coughing speech, oh. and we introduced it to her today. And what, How wonderful what, to see that for exactly, the first time. And, then, and to be there with her was a beautiful moment. It was a beautiful moment. <laughs> Face lit up like it was Christmas. Uh, right, we can go back to the House of Commons now uh, to see uh, for, for intervention number three from Lindsay Hoyle. 
Mr. Spin, I, I think with his time away, he's slightly forgotten how this works. Yeah. And, and he, he talks about his plans. He talks about his plans, his NHS staffing plan. He doesn't need to lecture. Hold on, hold on. Oh, it go. might be the last one before recess, but I'd just say to somebody, if they really want to take and go early, it will be very tempting to ensure that we do it. But think long and hard before you do. Keir Starmer. If you know what that Thank means, you, Mr. Do Speaker. Get in touch he talks about ways. his plans. He doesn't need to lecture me on that. On the NHS staffing plan, he nicked it from Labour. Yes. It's the same old story. They mess up the NHS and look to Labour to fix it. Come the election, the country will be doing the same. The difference is that, unlike us, he hasn't said how he'd pay for his workforce plan. Now's his chance. Where's the money coming from? Mr Speaker, Mr. Speaker, not only is, is the NHS long-term workforce plan fully funded, it was welcomed, it was welcomed, it was welcomed by not one, not two, but by 43 different NHS stakeholders, Mr Speaker. But you no, know, he talks about our plans and are they making a difference. Well let's just look. Let's just look in urgent and emergency care. Our plans mean that we'll put eight hundred more ambulances on the road, five thousand more beds, faster discharge, more community care. That's why the Royal College of Emergency Medicine described it as significant and that it will undoubtedly improve conditions. But that's why, Mr Speaker, what have we seen? A&E waiting times in England, the best in two years, Mr Speaker. Well, while, the, while, while, Mr Speaker, and they won't like this, while the NHS has the worst waiting times in the country in Wales, Mr Speaker. There the we are. Ones are the best. <laughs> nothing, nothing gets me going more than the phrase 43 stakeholders. Oh, no. <laughs> not one, not two. You should have done them all. Not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, all the way up to four. The they, were of very, they were very proud of that. I remember on the day, we've got 43 different quotes on the press release. And, you know, fair play to them. They haven't managed to pull that off. The second you use the word stakeholders, oh, yeah. even most people in Westminster have no idea what you're talking about. It's, it's, it's in the top five list of awful managerial euphemisms of the age. Yeah. The only time you can use the word stakeholder is when Tim and I went and had a lovely steak lunch, didn't we, Tim? Uh, there was that. Lots yes. of people were asking on the YouTube channel about the uh, the lunch, the, the dinner that you promised me, because we had a bet a few weeks ago. I remember. Ago. Uh, and Tim and I, we've been in at our lunch, and you'll be able to hear what happened. Uh, everything's content. Everything's content. Everything is content. You'll be able to hear what happened once <laughs> I finish cutting out the bits which are not for broadcast. Uh, I bet there's some defamatory stuff in there. Oh, very oh, much so. Brilliant. Very yeah. much so. And very much uh, yeah. Matt more likely to lose his job than me. <laughs> <laughs> which is why I'm editing it. Uh, you'll be able to hear that on Food Week in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, so that'll be good. Um, I feel like we're slightly disappearing into sort of technocrat wonka-thon on who's got the better workforce plan. Uh, true, but an interesting pivot from Starmer, from just sort of asking banal questions, you know, about numbers. He's now saying, well, he's now trying to run the argument that the Tories haven't said where the money's coming from. Now, Sunak can say it's fully funded because what he's actually done is said to the everybody in government departments, all these different um, uh, uh, wage um, deals have to come out of your existing budget. Um, so he can say it's fully funded because the money was already uh, handed to there. those departments. It, it what what we don't know is what else is yeah, being yeah, yeah. cut in yeah. order to pay for it. Um, but it's interesting if Starmer is going to start turning that traditional sort of Tory yeah, yeah. argument around uh, on the government and say, well, come on then, um, you haven't told us where the yeah, cash yeah. is coming from. But everything the government does is kind of fully funded, isn't it? Because they have the money. Yeah, so, yeah. so we're, we're, by virtue of spending it, they're Well, they're tell that to Liz Truss. 
that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Some of those things were not fully funded. No. It turned out. Uh, well, let's go back to the House of Commons now. This is question number four from Keir Starmer. Uh, Mr Speaker, when he said the workforce plan was fully cost, I've never seen the Chancellor more bewildered. <laughs> It's less than a year since his party crashed the economy with their unfunded spending commitments and he hasn't learned a thing. So let me ask it another way. Is his uncosted spending coming from more tax rises, more cuts, or is it just the latest promise to fall from the Tories' magic money tree? Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, as, as, as I and the Chancellor set out, the plan is fully funded. He'll see that at the autumn statement. But I, I am pleased. I am pleased he's now, he's now interested in fiscal responsibility, because that is very welcome, Mr Speaker. Because well, there's an opportunity for us to make sure that this is true conviction. We've just had, Mr Speaker, in the last week, we've had the recommendations of independent pay review bodies, including, including for the NHS. Now, I believe the right thing to do was to accept those independent recommendations. But that involves taking difficult and responsible decisions to deliver those pay rises without fuelling borrowing inflation, taxes and debt. But on this crucial issue, Mr Speaker, while his MPs are back on the picket lines, yet yet again on this issue, he simply refuses to take a position. It's the same old story. He should stop taking inspiration from his friends outside and unglue himself from the fence. Oh, I think that's an Oliver Downton joke. Well, if it was, it was delivered better than Oliver Downton has <laughs> yeah. delivered them of late. I mean, there's a bit of noise behind him today. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, in terms of the cut and thrust in the chamber, however banal we might find the content, yeah. um, he's doing all right today. Do you think that? Do you think they're? I mean, do they know it's the end of? Is it sort of end of term? It is end of term, and they want to go to the summer feeling better about their, themselves than than they felt a little while ago. And if you go through Sunak's answers, they were sort of. But, you know, it's not what you, you know, you need to be optimist to put hope together out of all those. But, yeah. you know, if he's right that, you know, an A&E waiting times are coming down, that ambulance times are coming down, that's not going to have much of an impact yet. But if you get four months of that continuing, then they'll start to feel like they're turning the corner a little bit. I'm still surprised when I've really listened to this how little you get answered. I, mean, I don't know why I should be, because whenever I do political interviews, I always beat myself up. I didn't, I didn't get anything out of them. Why did I not get more out of them? And then you see these guys with all this, the yeah. resource behind them, they don't really get anything either, do they? They, don't, they, don't, they, don't, they know how not to give an answer. Yeah, true. But equally, I think, and, and you shouldn't beat yourself up, I mean, when I listen to you or anybody else, I'm trying to see to what degree they're not answering or to what degree they're sort of... You know, how are they not answering? Yeah. How uncomfortable do they feel not answering? To some extent. You, know, you can learn a, quite a lot on a meta level. But doing a print interview, yeah. as you do, is much harder. It's, it's a totally different because, exercise. Because if you if if you ask a question on the radio and they don't answer it five times, that's great because everyone can see what they're doing. But in print, that's just that's you know you've just the got only a load way... of unusable quotes. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, if if it's really bad, you can just about turn it around yeah. and do a total. This is what really happened. I d I've done that once on Theresa May where it was just impossible. And my intro was something like, you know, we're nine minutes in and she said she's strong 12 times, stable 13 times. And, and, and that was, you, don't, you don't like burning that bridge, presumably. Well, you, you, I didn't have a lot of choice in that one. Even even her aides were sitting there pulling their hair out, wondering why she wouldn't answer any questions. I remember Jonathan Oliver did a brilliant one on Gordon Brown where he literally printed every word that Gordon said down to all the ums and ahs and the refusals to do anything. But you can only pull that trick very occasionally. I'd, someone got in touch with me about the Ben Wallace 
Wallace interview I did and said I hadn't challenged him greatly. as a serving member of the cabinet who was criticising me for this. And I said, print interviews are not, they're they're not effective as, they're they're quote mining exercises. The goal is to get them to say interesting things and I think Wallace did. If I'd sort of banged onto him about defence spending and whether or not he'd got all of it right, nobody would have read 2,000 words in it. Well, there's a distinction, isn't there, Pat? Who's the, who's the person in that interview? This is true of radio as well. Who's the person people want to hear from? Ultimately, it's Ben Wallace, not you. Correct. And that's true on the radio as well, isn't it, Matt? Yeah, yeah, really? Yeah. That you can wow. make it. You... I think people like hearing from me. Do they? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Less so you. Yeah. Apart from <laughs> you being the obvious exception. But if it's you, then maybe that's not right either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, it's the thing that, that, that winds uh, listeners up more than anything if you do keep interrupting. Uh, without at least giving them. You know, let them set out their boring stall first. Yeah, and if they keep going back to the same thing, then you, it's then legitimate to jump in, isn't it? But yeah. uh, where they barely get... The problem is for people who are well plugged into politics doing interviews, um, when they know exactly where the person's going with it yeah. and try to stop them going there, it then gets a bit fractious, doesn't it? Uh, anyway, Greg, we didn't... Greg Hans, Tory, Tory party chairman, has tweeted that Rishi Sunak is on fire at PMQs. Well, let's hope someone does something about that then. Yeah, I'm sure... sure uh... Uh, um, I wonder if the speaker would have anything to I, say about Lindsay that. Lindsay if Hoyle the, hose him down <laughs> if with some Prime more I'd like to see how quickly each member of the cabinet ran to the hose <laughs> to help. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would be a good test, wouldn't it? <laughs> test of loyalty there. Right, here we go. Then let's find out what's happening. It's uh, question number five from Keir Starr. Oh, we want some more. Who wants to lead the exit? Mr. Speaker, in that burst of nonsense, what you didn't hear was a single word about how he's going to be paying for it. Labour's NHS workforce plan is fully funded by scrapping the non-DOM status that he so adores. You know the one? Yeah, we do. (laughs) Non-DOM. I think one or two of you have asked to catch my eye. Lindsay's back. You're not going the right way. Keir Stopper. That's now more Thank interventions than the leader Labour's of the opposition. Like he knows I'm here. fully funded by scrapping the non-DOM status. Yeah. That he's so adored. You know the one, oh. the non-DOM tax thing, as he calls it, that allows some of the wealthiest people in the country to avoid paying tax here. Is that loophole so important to him that he'd rather have billions in unfunded promises than simply making billionaires pay what they owe? Yeah. Mr Speaker, this is... This, the, same, the same policy that has paid, I think, for five different things at this point. I think, Mr. Speaker, everybody knows, everybody knows that I'm a fan of doing maths to 18, but the Honourable Gentleman makes a very strong case for doing maths all the way to 61, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Is he 61? He is. He is, yeah. When it comes, Mr. Speaker... But when it, when it comes to the substance well, actually, of the plan, it's September. important we address this. Right? I, I am aware, actually, and I, and I will say this, he did, and he did set out some proposals to train more staff. The problem is, Mr Speaker, that's all he did. Our plan is much more comprehensive and it's much more impactful because not only will we train more staff, Mr Speaker, well, no, this is important substance because I acknowledge the party opposite did set out some plans to train more, but that's not enough. You also have to set out plans as we did to retain more NHS staff. And you also crucially, you also crucially have to set out plans to how you reform the NHS so that you can have a more productive NHS. And that is the difference between us, Mr Speaker. He is only ever focused on the superficial headline. We're getting on and doing the actual reform. Quite a good oh, line. this is the, this is good. Maths, I'm enjoying maths, this. Sixty one was a that's good. That's a good proper gag. Yeah. And and yeah, to answer Stig's question, Starmer will be the oldest new prime minister 
because he by then would most likely be 62, since, um, is it Callahan? Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, it's a long time. It's a good game. Also, maybe, I don't know, people listening, do they think, oh, Starmer's 61. Do they think, oh, he didn't look bad for 61? Or do they yeah. think, oh, God, he's 61, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I kind of thought he didn't look bad for 61, yeah. maybe. I thought the I thought the rest of that Sunak answer was classic Sunak though, wasn't it? It was sort of my plan's better than yours, and you know, again, lots of good detail, and then accuses Starmer of going after a superficial headline, and you know, a lot of the MPs sitting behind Rishi Sunak would be pretty happy if he started going after a few superficial headlines. But also, isn't Labour pretty? The one thing they're not bad at with Wes Streeting, Tim, they're quite. They're quite in the weeds of the NHS reform, aren't they? They're quite. That's, is that an area of strength for them? The idea of reforming the NHS. I mean, I think it will be because it's. It, if you are trying to pitch as not quite we're the new Blairites, but certainly we're prepared to do things a little bit differently, you need fiscal responsibility and you need to be prepared to stand up to some of the people that are your natural allies, and that's what Wes Streeting is doing. I mean, and actually, the stuff that Wes has done on, uh, you know, it's not a shrine. It's just a public service and it's not the envy of the world. And he said stuff about the Labour... He's said stuff about the NHS that if a Tory minister said about it, he'd be all over them. And he knows what he's doing. Yeah, exactly. Oh, totally. And, and, you know, traditionally, it has taken the Labour Party to reform the NHS because the Tories um, are so nervous of it, they just have to chuck money at it. Um, uh, You're right. It was uh, Callaghan. Well done. Only about seven or eight others have been older. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, yeah? There we are. Who's the oldest Prime Minister? Does that tell you that? Oh, actually, no, there have been olders. There have been olders. If you go back a long way, there were certainly a lot that were a lot older, but um, in, in modern times, it's quite rare to be... So it'll be older than Theresa May was when she became Prime Unlike in America, interestingly. Uh, where, indeed, where, yeah, where, yeah, the gerontocracy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I st- that, that boggles my mind every time I think about it, that the two best candidates for, for mm. the most important job in the world may be either close to their 80s or actually well, in their Well, I know, 80s. and I saw my parents, yeah. you know, my father's in his late 70s, he's a wonderful man, and I love him dearly, but uh, I don't think he would say he was ready to start leading the free world <laughs> yeah, at this yeah. stage of Palmerston. life. Palmerston, Palmerston was the oldest, 70 he was when oh. he became Prime Anyway, I didn't realise what the time was, we were having such a lovely time. And we've still got question number six, and Intervention number 12 uh, to come from uh, Lindsay Hall. Let's go back to the Commons. Uh, Mr. Speaker, if he's so good at maths, then I'm 60, not 61. (laughs) (laughs) This is what we reduced to. I don't know whether the Prime Minister's found time to visit Hillingdon Hospital during the recent by election, where the wards have had to close, staff are working in appalling conditions, and patient safety is at risk. And that's simply a snapshot of the wider problem. This week, the National Audit Office set out in detail what everyone already knows. The Government's hospital programme has, shall we say, some gaps in it. So can the Prime Minister confirm that, apart from the fact that there aren't 40 of them, and the fact that most of them aren't new, and that many of them aren't even hospitals, everything's going fine with the 40 new hospitals? Mr Speaker, not only are we going to deliver on our manifesto commitment to build 40 new hospitals across the country by 2030. We're not, we're not just stopping there, Mr Speaker, because we're also delivering 100 hospital upgrades across the country and, crucially, 100 
over 100 new community diagnostic centres to speed up treatment for people, including, Mr Speaker, in the Deputy Leader's constituency, the Shadow Work and Pension Secretary's constituency, the Energy Secretary, the, the Justice Secretary, the Attorney General's constituency. That's how committed we are, Mr Speaker. But look, let me end on this, because he mentioned Hillingdon Hospital, he mentioned Uxbridge. I tell you what, I want to help the people of this country, Mr Speaker. I want to make sure that not only can they get to work, but they get the care they need. Why on earth does he want to charge them £12.50 every time they visit their GP and hospital? There we are. Finish on a ULES gag. (laughs) (laughs) First rule of showbiz. Yeah, Uh, you're here all week. Um, Don't eat the liver. Is that right? Um, uh, What do you make of that then, Stig? Well, it wasn't great, was it? I mean, (laughs) by any standards, I don't think it was great. Yeah. But I suppose does Rishi does does Rishi Sunak have a win? That. Does he count that as a win? Well, he, I, th- I think Rishi Sunak will count that as a win. Yes, yeah. that he escaped. He, he came back hard with a few good points, and his people behind him will go to summer uh, a lot happier than they were this morning. Unless they lose all three by elections tomorrow, uh, and then they'll be upset again. Yeah, yeah. But he had but he had the best jokes this week. Rishi Sunak. He had better jokes. Uh, Unglue himself from the fence. Yeah. Maths to sixty-one. Yeah. You Les. <laughs> Yeah, let's not forget you, Les. That you, The problem is that there is... He, he, he didn't quite land, hit the landing, did he, on the, yeah, yeah. the Ulez gag? I mean, I, I don't think it was very high-quality politics, but yeah. I've, en- I've enjoyed the uh, exterior banter. Good. Lara Spirit is here, Redbox reporter, taking a look at the best of the rest. A good last day of term, Lara? They were pretty badly behaved, but there were some good questions. That's what we want. Yeah. That's what we want. There was a lot of Lindsay Hoyle interventions. <sighs> Stig's been enjoying that. It just winds me up. You hate them. I hate it. It's just so naff. I won't have a word said against the MP for I know, I know you. I, I know you love him and all that, but it's so awful. And it's such a bad advert for democracy, I think. Him pootling away like a like a sort of old, bad teacher. It just it winds me up every time I hear it. If we had another chair, we could have uh, Patrick McGuire in it to do Don't Touch the Lathe, but we haven't. So, uh, Lara, where are we going first? We are going, predictably, to Stephen Flynn, who's ah! obviously back. Uh, and, you know, true to the mugs that were left on journalist desk this morning, indicating there'd be some sort of jibe around the two-child benefit cap. Uh, we had exactly that. But it was actually pretty artfully done. And the second question that we'll play now uh, had a great allusion to something that Harold Wilson said, to so see if you can pick Ooh, up on one for the young people. <laughs> Mr Speaker, voters in Scotland are used to child poverty under the Tories. They almost expect it. But what they don't expect, what they don't expect is child poverty support from the Labour Party. And if we look very closely right now, there is a shiver running along the Labour front bench looking for a spine. Now, Mr Speaker, does this not tell us something much bigger? Bigger. Now, for children living in poverty in Scotland, Westminster offers them no real change. It offers them no real hope. Well, Mr Speaker, the best best route out of poverty is through work, Mr Speaker. Uh, and And the best way to ensure that children do not grow up in poverty is to ensure that they do not grow up in a workless household. Uh, that's why we are focused on creating more jobs with 200,000 more in Scotland since 2010 and hundreds of thousands fewer children across the United Kingdom growing up, fewer growing up in a workless household. We will always continue to reduce child poverty. I don't want to see a single child grow up in poverty and we will deliver that in every part of the UK, including in Scotland. It's, I know we've talked about this before, but it's been a really noticeable shift in the past only really couple of months 
that Stephen Flynn's now using his questions at PMQs to attack Labour as much, if not more, than the government. Yeah, it's interesting. And often you hear uh, Lindsay Hoyle try to discipline Rishi Sunak for asking questions of Keir Starmer, but actually Stephen Finn rarely gets, uh, you know, similarly We just got some for... weird coughing from Lindsay Hoyle then, didn't he? Was that he, Lindsay Hoyle making Yeah, a little a grumble, noise? which Dick didn't like much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He started and he said, I can't, I can't remember. remember. <laughs> it was late in the day at this point. Uh, but you'll have noticed that uh, Harold Wilson comment obviously yeah. used against uh, Ted Heath. I thought very interesting. And uh, as you say, the likelihood, given now that there are all those, uh, you know, predictions that Labour will make great inroads uh, north of the border come the next election that uh, it makes pretty good sense you'd expect for the Westminster leader to be taking a hit both at um, the Labour leader and the, the Conservative leader. What's your reading of this Tim? Is it? Well I just spent the whole time googling Shiver running up the sp- looking for a spine <laughs> to run up and Lara spilt it. I was oh. going to be like the kid in class who knew the answer having googled it. Oh, <laughs> she knows. She's read all the But yes Wilson I mean you know it's a, the, the battle in Scotland is essentially between the SNP and, and the Labour Party and you're going to see a lot more of that. But on our w- own what's ventures. your reading of the Labour position of keeping the two child ban? Because although Labour MPs are very upset about it, and the SNP are very upset about it. The public still like it, don't they? Uh, yeah, and I think there's an element of the sort of Dominic Cummings strategy during the referendum of putting a very large and not quite accurate number on the side of a bus. Um, everybody's talking about it, and if you haven't yet noticed that Rachel Reeves keeps enforcing U-turns on the Labour Party to en- enforce fiscal responsibility you're probably more likely to notice it with this one than you have with the two or three other things that she's done recently. And it's quite a good way, you know, the the louder his own party screams, the more uh, the sort of moderate floating voter goes, oh, actually, these people might be quite serious about uh, not spending all our money this time. This is the ghost of Corbyn point, I think, isn't it? That that manifesto that he did whenever it was 2019, which had individual policies in it, which polled pretty well yeah. but the net effect of it was no one believes you've got the money to do it yeah, yeah, yeah. that seems to be the dominant force behind everything that Starmer's doing it was there. the free broadband that it, flipped everyone out and even was, people who wanted free broadband and free good broadband is a really good idea it would yeah. actually, actually would work and nationalising the rails was popular and all of that but taken as a whole people thought we can't trust you with the money I just yeah, wonder yeah. if that's the main you've thing you've just gone mad yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah, main yeah. thing that's on his mind the whole time yeah Starmer. lovely stuff well, that was a good one Lara. who Thank is you. up next uh, Mark Francois oh <laughs> End of term um, And this is regarding, he's already made comments to this effect, but he makes them uh, much more strongly now about that peculiar video from Tobias Elwood, chair of the Defence Oh, actually, Committee. in fact, before we hear the Mark Francois, can we hear the, the um, we have got a bit of the uh, Tobias Elwood video. Have you both seen it? It's unbelievable. I think the weirdest, so basically Tobias Elwood is the chairman of the Conservative, he's the Conservative MP, chairs the Defence Select Committee, went to Afghanistan, and his basic argument was the government should should uh, think again about engaging but uh, with the Taliban and, and trying to improve the people's lives there. But ended up making what sounds like a video for a timeshare. Let's take a listen. Well, I'm here back in Helmand province in Afghanistan, courtesy of the Halo Trust. And all that's happened here since 9-11, this is a very different country in deal. It feels different now that the Taliban have returned to power. Well, it may be hard to believe, but security has vastly improved, corruption is down, and the opium trade has all but disappeared. Yet the reason security's improved is because the Taliban aren't fighting the democratic government anymore. Anyway, The music as well. I know, it's the music. the music on that? The music really takes like, the music a place in the sun territory. <laughs> yeah, he's talking about the Taliban. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a, a, a senior Conservative got in touch with me last night and said that uh, Tobias Elwood is so dense that light bends around him. Wow. <laughs> But let's find out what Mark Francois had to say about him at PMQ. Speaking of which. 
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Prime Minister mentioned our armed forces. Can I mention them again? We lost 457 personnel in Afghanistan killed and several thousand who suffered life-changing injuries. So I and some of my colleagues on the Defence Committee were absolutely stunned to see a video posted by our own chairman lauding the Taliban's governance of Afghanistan, not mentioning they're still trying to identify and kill Afghan civilians who sided with NATO forces, and also not mentioning the fact they don't like girls to go to school. So can I make plain this was not in our name? And can I have the Prime Minister's assurance that this silly and naive act was not in his name either? Well, Mr Speaker, I join with my honourable friend in paying tribute to our brave serving personnel and veterans and thank them for their service, as indeed we've touched on earlier today. Uh, And we have repeatedly and will continue to repeatedly call out the human rights abuses that we see around the world. And he mentions rightly the the prohibition on on women being educated in Afghanistan, which is something we've spoken about in the past. But we will also continue to have dialogue with regimes. That doesn't mean that we consider those regimes to be legitimate or approve of their actions, but that is all part, as he will understand, of establishing normal diplomatic presence in countries when the situation allows. But I'll very happily look into the specific uh, case that he brought up with me. I mean, that's a very odd answer, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's well, can't you just say, down. yes, I mean, you just, yeah. What's he going to look up? Or play I don't an old know. Video? I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe you like the music or something. I mean, given that there was an exchange on this in the Commons yesterday. Yeah, it was yesterday, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Where Mark Francois said basically the same thing. Ian Duncan Smith had a go. Johnny Mercer, actually, who was the Veterans Minister, was was much clearer than Rishi Sunak was then. Yeah, it's interesting. There seems to be some ministerial discretion on this. It's not that Rishi Sunak actually hasn't seen the case clearly when he was you know, preparing for this answer. Yeah. He would have been able to see it. That's, that's a holding answer, right? And he was yeah. given the opportunity to outrightly condemn Tobias Elwood, and he chose not to. So it was an interesting answer in that respect. And actually, you can say, we're going to talk to regimes without considering yeah, yeah, yeah. the legitimate, without saying... Just without, out, you're just out of the, the music. Opportunity. Just out of the music. <laughs> it's that simple. <laughs> You fixed it. But he's gone off reserve because Tobias Hill was coming on our programme saying he wanted to rejoin the EU. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's not clearly a, a, a solid member. I said go and join the Lib Dems then. And he was yeah. like, that's a disgraceful thing to say, but <laughs> I don't think it is. I mean, is he really a Tory anymore? He's a very, very old man. I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, I once sat down and had a coffee with him in Portcullis House where he explained to me how he was planning to be the next leader of the Conservative Party and did I have any advice for him? And my advice was, don't start telling that to journalists before you've got the first clue how to go about it. I remember what I said against him. He came on to, uh, to talk to us about woodwork, and he said he'd invented the cat-friendly rocking chair. Well, what can you say to that? With a, with a, cause well, if ju- he's... So, I mean, that sounds like the kind of innovative thing he should go and pursue <laughs> as a career option. Apparently, the trouble with a, with a traditional rocking chair is you can squash a cat under it. So, are we saying, if we, on, his, on his manifesto as prospective leader, there's praise the Taliban, yeah. rejoin the EU... Yeah. Rocking chairs for cats. Yes. No, not for cats. Cat-friendly. Cat-friendly so rocking squash, chairs. The, apparently, oh. apparently the rock is in the arms <laughs> rather than in the feet. You don't want to think of a squash cat. Just, that genius. makes me feel really horrible and uneasy to imagine a poor cat being... Not well, to well, with well, a cat. Well, yeah. he's got your vote then. <laughs> <laughs>
This is why I'm students. slightly more concerned about the girls in Afghanistan, personally. No, oh. no. Somebody think about the cat. The father the of two chairs. daughters. Yeah. I think he's a lunatic. Yeah, but, but think of that. Think of that music on it, though. That think really, of the music. Think of the music. Yeah. Laura, can you possibly top that? <laughs> well, there are a couple of questions uh, with regards to Nigel Farage's uh, spot of banking difficulty yeah. that would be worth listening to. There was David Davis, but also uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg. I think will go to who works, step. of course, with Nigel Farage. So you know. <laughs> It's a narrow church. Maybe they've been, maybe they've been talking about it at the, at the staff canteen. <laughs> so, yeah, take a listen to this. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Does my right honourable friend share my unease that a bank that has the government as its largest shareholder should close the account of a senior opposition politician? Will he TV presenter. use the government's shareholding to ensure that there is an inquiry into these circumstances because the subject data access request makes it clear, or certainly indicates, that it is the person concerns political views that led to his cancellation. And does my right honourable friend agree with me that however much we may find however much we may find them tiresome, members of the opposition deserve bank accounts? Yeah. Well, Mr Speaker, it, it wouldn't be right if financial services were being denied to anyone exercising their right to lawful free speech. Uh, our new Financial Services and Markets Act put, puts in place new measures to ensure that politically exposed persons are being treated in an appropriate and proportionate manner. And having consulted on the payment services regulations, we are, we are in the process of cracking down on this practice by tightening the rules around account closures. But in the meantime, any individual can complain to the Financial Ombudsman Service, oh, which has the power oh. to direct a bank to reopen he their account. He sets that right up, hasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Finally, somebody mentioned the Ombudsman. What a way to go out at the end of term, Laura. Thank you for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, uh, has he missed a trick there? I mean, it's sort of... Even, even people who fundamentally disagree with Nigel Farage on anything can see that this is quite bad. I'm, I mean, I've, you know, I've tweeted about it. I think it's absolutely absurd. Um, and, I mean, how have they been caught with their trousers so comprehensively around their ankles, effectively briefing the BBC, lying about why they'd closed the account, and then having written it all down in emails so that it would be subject to a... And now, presumably, we talked about this earlier, anyone with a Coots review. bank account is going to do a public access request, sure. yeah. discover what they think of them, and then take their business well, elsewhere. Can you but, imagine the sort of the range of people who have Coots bank accounts? I mean, yeah. is there not a Saudi Arabian or a yeah, Russian say, or must, any one of there, these people? There must be some people yeah. to whom you could ask a certain amount of questions about their practices and beliefs, I yeah. imagine. And the fact that Nigel Farage says some objectionable things on a TV channel that most people don't watch does not seem to be grounds to kick him off. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Let me know what you think. Email me matt at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly is goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 